Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today we are speaking with life coach and author, Robert Party. Robert and I connected over social media and it didn't take long before I looked at his story and knew he had to be a guest on the show. So I was so grateful that we actually crossed paths and made this happen. There's so much gold in this episode. Robert is born was born in New York City and he is one of those rare individuals who embraces change and lives what he calls possibility in action. He received his MBA from Columbia University and was quickly recruited by the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds. Shortly after, his wife Desiree was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Unfortunately, she passed 11 years later. And in 2014, throwing caution to the wind, Robert left from his comfort zone. He changed careers and moved to the same Italian village. His great grandfather immigrated to immigrated from over a hundred years ago. He is now a certified life coach, adjunct professor, international guest speaker, and the author of chasing life, the remarkable true story of love, joy, and achievement against all odds. This is an incredibly special episode. It's actually very hard to believe that we just met because there were so many things that he said that resonated and it's such a powerful share as he goes through so much of his life story and what he went through with his wife and how he is literally living that mission and embodying that about chasing life in the moments, not in the future, chasing chasing it now. It's a super special episode. I know you're going to love it. Welcome to the show today, Robert. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm thrilled. I really am thrilled, Marcia. This is the power of social media and how we can connect with people that we're meant to connect with. And this is one of the things I love is how we end up, you know, just serendipitously connecting with people. So I'm really thrilled to have you on the show today. Can you tell everyone where you are from? Sure. Um, I was born in New York City, but I actually live in the middle of Italy. You live, are you in Italy right now? Is that? I'm in Italy right now. Look at this. I (laughs) actually like, this is so cool. I didn't know that. I read New York on your, so I love that. I love that. In fact, this is the sunset, right? (laughs) Right now. The town in front of me, so. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. This is so exciting. Okay, so do you, are you a reader? I can see books behind you. Do you, do you have an impactful book you could share with us? Wow, you know, um, I I actually have tons. Um, I am a really big fan of Richard Bach, mm-hmm. and and any really of his books. Everyone knows him for Jonathan Livingston Siegel, 
but I love the book one. I love Illusions, which isn't really a book. It's more of this weird journal. Um, but, you know, those were my first sort of books that helped me awaken, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, they were approachable. They're written, I guess, in the, the late 70s, early 80s. I'm really not sure, but I, I know he's, he's older. Um, it's also, um, oh, what's the other book that, The Peaceful Warrior. Uh, oh. which was a film yeah. actually and um i always say say his name wrong paulo Co coelho yes uh, yes okay the, the the alchemist um but there's a book and now i will completely it'll come to you if it comes to you you let me know it's um touching the void it was also oh. a movie i cannot remember the name of the gentleman um but it was his his story, he and his partner were climbing in the Andes and um, his partner had to cut the rope and they thought he was dead, but he actually was alive and he just dragged himself frostbitten with a broken leg and ribs and oh my to gosh. camp. And it's just, it's tangible resilience. Like, mm -hmm. you know, he wanted to stop, but yet there was a voice in his, in his head that was telling him not to. Yeah, and he this talks is, about it. I'm going to have to look for that one because that is my, like, that is my type of book, movies, things that I watch, I look for. And because I love, I love how you said that tangible resilience, tangible. resilience. What does that mean yeah. to you? Well, you know, we're all resilient mm -hmm. and um, we, we could talk about that forever. But this is this is showing how even when you don't think you have it in you, we have an innate survival mechanism. And the, what's so amazing about his story and the, the movie was OK. I think the book was just absolutely fantastic. Um, and the, the audio book is even better because he reads it. But he wanted to stop and he had a battle between the voice in his head that was telling him to give up and the resilience voice that was saying, you can do it. And that's what I mean about tangible resilience. It's just, it's so tangible because you see the battle he's having of his limiting beliefs mm -hmm. and then what our true nature is, which, which is resilience mm -hmm. um, or else the human race wouldn't be here. Right. So, and people think resilience is sort of only for select few Every time our back has been against the wall and we've said, I can't take another thing, and we do, we're resilient. Now, if we can learn to access that instead of waiting to be forced into it, that changes life. It does. That is yeah. so good. That is so good because I think you you said it in a sense, and I'll paraphrase it, but you said it in a sense that like resiliency, I think it's like courage and bravery and all these things that we tend to look at people and think they have it and they don't. And that's right. not at all. I mean, I think you access it at all times. And I think also in how fast you can reframe. I mean, the reframe is something I go back to regularly because I'm like, no, no, you can choose to look at this differently and reframe it immediately in the moment is, and learning how to reframe faster is really important. But for me, where, where you learn how to reframe and reframe faster, because it's very hard. People, they fight against reframing because they think they're talking themselves into something that's mm -hmm. not real, but we've already talked ourselves into things 
Anyway, and a lot of the things that we're carrying with us, we absorbed when we were a seven-year-old kid, right? We didn't decide on that. But I I claim, this is this is my own belief, but, you know, I'm sort of a science fiction superhero type guy. I just, I like to live in that world. So I believe resilience is found at the intersection of purpose, personal power, and perspective. Mm. And so you will reframe and find it a great tool when you don't want to give up your values, when you actually have that to fight for instead of fighting against life, then you're going to reframe, then you're going to do what you need to do to be resilient. Mm -hmm. And because you're living in that, that beautiful intersection, which is like a state of flow, because it's your, your life has come together. There's harmony. That's, I, I, the, I'm almost out of, I'm, I'm out of words, which is like not good right now. Cause wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I'm going to give a little example only because it's hitting really close to home and this will air later. But, um, one of my, uh, cousins is going through brain surgery. She has a, she has a brain cancer that has spread from, um, breast cancer from a few years ago. And literally like literally just before we got on she sent me a message. She's going in today and she sent me a message and she just said, well, I got bumped because of an emergency procedure. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. She goes, I'm okay. Honestly, it's okay. Like I, it's going to happen and I'm ready. And I actually feel really good today. And I'm like, okay. So for anybody who just complained about something that went wrong in your day, like here is someone who is in my age bracket, who is getting ready for brain surgery for a tumor And she's like, no, I'm actually having a really good day. Like that is that perspective and the way that is you're saying, like in the moment to look at it, because she said it, it takes away my power to be able, like, I I need to keep that myself. I'm like, you hundred percent do that. That's, that's exactly it. You know, if you, I, I come from an economics background, which is very funny to have become a life coach. And we'll talk about the whole journey, but I bring a lot of that into it. And our, our energy, it's, it's a resource, right? And depending on where we direct it, we're not directing it towards something else. That's an opportunity course, cost. <laughs> um, so if you think about those two things, right, when you are in that realm or when the situation you're talking about now People that have to confront something so big, they learn to let go of the unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all part of this, right? So then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're going to say, no, why am I going to waste my energy that doesn't produce anything? Right. That's also part of resilience. That's that perspective. That's that, that's more that's personal power. Yes. That's really that's your agency, right? That's that's where you're 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 assessing. And you are actually demanding life works for you. Which is not how it happens. Like you, you don't, can't control those other pieces. Exactly. Yeah. You have so much knowledge in this area and how you speak is so confident and sure of the message that you're saying, which I think is absolutely beautiful. Was it always like that? It, it actually was nice. I wasn't able to speak about it. Mm-hmm. I was able to live it. 
-hmm. but I couldn't put it into words. Uh, The journey with my wife helped me put it into words, but I grew up in a dysfunctional relationship with an alcoholic dad. And he didn't, he certainly didn't want a child for whatever reason, I don't know. And it just, it just so happened. Also, I was born on his birthday, which is why I'm actually a junior. And um, so that, that even complicated sort of the relationship in a way, right? Because then we were bound in certain things, but um, I learned early on to understand uncertainty. And that was extremely important because once I was able to understand that everything does change, I can't, as much as I wanted to, I remember being a kid trying to identify, well, if these three things happened, then I shouldn't come home and I'll sleep at my friend's because he'll probably beat me. These three things happen and everything's going to be okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't the case. And I was Mm -hmm. trying desperately to figure out the formula. When I finally stood up for myself um, and I actually fought back, I got old enough and big enough where I actually could fight back physically, um, which ended everything that moment. (laughs) It was the typical bully syndrome, but it was there that I started living all of this. I started living um, grit. Like I couldn't define what grit was. And, you know, grit for me, it's, you know, it's that long-term goal. It's just resilience and relentless intention, basically. Mm-hmm. And having self-trust, like uh, I'm a big acronym guy. So the T I would say is self-trust, because if you don't have trust in yourself, you'll never have that power you need to, to sustain a long-term goal, to actually reach that long-term goal. So that taught me that, but I couldn't define them. And as I got older, I started realizing that I saw things a lot differently. I I didn't actually have the normal childhood, right? Because I started thinking about making money that was going to save me. I was a 13-year-old kid. When I was 13, you could get a job in a supermarket or anywhere, you know? (laughs) So, um, and it was whatever I could do to get money, I was going to get money and I was going to be independent. It caused me to try to figure out how I could use what was happening in my life to make myself better or make my situation better. Mm-hmm. And I talk about it now that I'm I'm so grateful for the childhood I had, even though it, it seems crazy, right? Because there, there were all those things that, you know, maybe a child shouldn't go through, but it taught me so much that has brought me to this point in my life where I can speak confidently about these things. And and I know they're important because I lived it. Mm-hmm. So. so that's just, thank you for sharing that. And I can sure. honestly say that for the number of people that I interview on the show who have unbelievable stories, almost always, when I ask them certain questions about gratitude and what they've learned, they almost always say, everything I've had to go through has made me who I am. It's a perspective. That's a perspective that you know, it's, it's tough when you've had really difficult upbringing and challenges that you just should not have to go through, but you do, and it makes you who you are. So as all of this went 
um, through and formed you to be the person that you were into your young adult years, then take us through um, you and your wife and what that experience, wherever you want to take it. Yeah, sure. I'd love just to talk about the point we just said, though, because I, I, there's, there's something that I feel very, very strongly about. And um, this is, if people are, are really self-reflective mm-hmm. and if they look at themselves and they're happy with who they are, this is the big thing because it does a lot, so much comes down to identity. So if you are happy with who you are, you have to thank all the crap because you wouldn't be who you are if it wasn't for that. Right. So, and I talk about it, you know, if you look at mosaics and I'm lucky enough to live in Italy, I lived in Rome. You look at those ancient mosaics and you really look at those, those pieces, they're all cut by hand. They're all flawed, Mm -hmm. but the mosaic is beautiful. Oh, what a beautiful All of that stuff. It just, you know, I, I actually had a friend of mine that said, really just look at the mosaics, like spend time looking at them. And what I realized is all our imperfections, all the stuff that maybe we don't want people to know, that's added depth to our character. And that's the depth of a mosaic. That's what makes it beautiful. That's all those highlights of light and everything else. So I just wanted to touch on that because you you hinted at it and it's it's so important. And if you're not happy with who you are, Then you ask the question, well, what are the pieces I'm not happy about? And what do I have control over? What we always have control over is our perspective. That's choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are blessed to have choice. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about Viktor Frankl and, you know, the man's search for meaning and all of that. So, um, So the story with my wife, I was truly blessed to have met an amazing young woman. She was 17 and I was 19 in university. Mm -hmm. Now I grew up an Italian American. I was not used to very opinionated women, let's say (laughs) in my family. And I meet this just firecracker of, of a young woman who just countered me on things and called me out. And I was like, really? Like, (laughs) and she just, she just knocked me off my feet. So that was it. We we were together. Um, we got married after she graduated college. And we just started pursuing the the New York lo- yuppie lifestyle, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, she was in it, she was in the MD PhD program at Mount Sinai, and I was an investment banker. I started questioning whether or not I actually wanted to stay in the field because it came from anger. My motivation was anger to get away from my dad. <laughs> and that's not sustainable. Anger anger is strong. I mean, it's important to understand anger because it does help create change maybe when you're not ready for change, mm-hmm. but it's not sustainable. And here I was in this loving relationship, watching my wife do all these amazing things. And we started talking about, you know, this isn't really for me. And she said, well, you know what, when you, when I graduate, why don't you go back to school and see what you want to do? I was like, okay, that's a, that's a plan. Then a few things happened. Um, I was offered a job in Abu Dhabi for the, um, 
the government of Abu Dhabi. It was their their sovereign wealth wealth fund. And though it would have caused us to live separate, they gave us 65 days a year vacation. My wife was doing her PhD and we were all, I grew up, my paternal grandmother was just, she was like the love of my life as a kid. And she said to me, be a gypsy. Mm. Don't be tied to anything. Experience life because that's what it's here for. Mm-hmm. So we were like, yeah, let's take the job. We'll travel all over. Every six weeks, we'll meet in a different country. And we actually did. Every six weeks, it was Paris. It was London. It was just, it was, it was amazing. She finishes her PhD and she tells me she wants to take a year off um, because she wants to come and live in the Middle East with me to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. So I was like, of course, you know, because I was also lonely. I was missing her. Sure. And um, so to get a residency visa in the UAE, you have to go through a medical screening. And that's when she had found a lump a year before, but her gynecologist had told her not to worry about it. She was 29, just turning 30. This was in the late 90s, so it was not normal. Um, She has cystic breasts, a history of them, so did her family. So the doctor in Dubai actually said, you know what, let me just do a needle aspiration. And there was no fluid. I didn't know what that meant, but I saw her face and I was like, oh. and so he said, look, I really don't think it's anything. Don't worry about it. You're very young. The statistics weren't there yet that a 30, 30 year old, one year old woman was going to have such advanced breast cancer, but she wound up having stage three. Mm-hmm. And my wife was a very, she really was a, a a really interesting person, not only spectacular. (laughs) Uh, And she didn't believe in judgment, judgment of others or judgment of herself. So she never knew her GPA. She never knew the the score on her MCATs. She asked me to fill them in because she just wanted to know she was doing her best. Mm -hmm. So the doctor broke the news to me in Dubai. And I think he did that not because of the Muslim religion, but he was this young Western woman all of a sudden her life is turned upside down. He was young himself and I just happened to be there and we started talking and he told me, so I said, let me break the news to her. And I said, what do you want to know? And she said, only the next steps. And so that started my role as not necessarily just a caregiver, but basically as the surrogate for her disease, I had to sort of live some of the things to make the right decisions for her. She outlined everything very clearly, as aggressive as she wanted to be. Um, she knew the first chemo she was going to be on, but she didn't want to know anything about staging, number of lymph nodes, the size of the tumor, or anything like that. So she gets her treatment. She goes into remission. She graduates at the top of her class. Um, in the MD part portion of the MD PhD is on the Oprah Winfrey show for graduating against the odds. Um, oh but you can't, you, you can't find it on the internet because it was way too early. It was 2002. So, um, and she starts off on her career about nine months after she finished all her surgeries, her oncologist, calls me into the office and he says, the cancer's come back in her liver. 
Now, I wonder if she was ever in remission because back then they didn't have PET scans. No. And CAT scans, by the time it shows up, it was probably already there for a while. Mm -hmm. So um, I told her about the recurrence. And oddly enough, she relaxed. It allowed her just to forget or worry about it ever coming back and interrupting her life. Oh, wow. Wow. I can just, I, I understand I, I, as best as I can relate, but understand what you're saying in the sense that there was always this looming feeling that it was coming like, what if, when, when, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, so this is now the reality. What do we do next? Exactly. Exactly. And that's sort of, you know, that's a a big resilience question for me as well is what's next. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, don't get lost in what's happening. What's next, you know, take it by the reins. Right. So oddly enough, I had a very difficult time um, when it recurred because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was confronted with, I couldn't save her. Yeah. You know, the first time, I don't know, she goes into remission. There is sort of like maybe this God complex. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and we want to fix, um, you know, I don't know. But when it came back, it was like, what did we do wrong? How did this happen? You know, now what? Mm-hmm. And it was really, there, 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 was a, there was a moment where I was falling apart and I saw her reaching to take care of me. And I just said, no, this is not what's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. She asked me to be her rock. So, you know, get up (laughs) and, and do it. And what I realized in that moment, I couldn't have defined it then. I can define it now. The difference between the two sides of a caregiver, because a parent is a caregiver. Mm-hmm. but a parent has hope the child's going to grow up is going to have a great life there's going to be marriage and grandchildren and everything else yeah. when you're a caregiver on the other side there is a destination that you don't want to approach but you know you're on that that trajectory let's say and while you can hope for new drugs and everything else the hope doesn't exist. And what I realized is, no, it's not hope about surviving. It's actually a hope about living. So how do we live today? And it allowed me to, and that sort of comes from my childhood, right? Because I couldn't run away from my house. I mean, I, I thought about suing my parents. I, you know, all those crazy things that you read about when you're a kid, right? I, I thought about, you know, going into a foster home or running away or whatever the case was. But I couldn't. So I had to find out, had to figure out at that time how to live each day for my goal, but as best as possible. And the same thing came around again. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at how can we make today great? What can we do today? And that's how we thrive in life. It's not about the end. That's, it was so amazing how it, it evolved, but 
the end result, unfortunately, none of us are meant to survive life. No. That's just, you know, that's what it's about. And um, I say this all the time when I speak, the ancient Japanese use a calendar of 72 seasons mm -hmm. to actually mark impermanence, mark change. So if I put everything in the future on that hope of survival, what are we doing between now and then? So it was to just live the day and live the moments. And yeah, did I have to leave work? I, I did because as she got sicker, but you know what? Um, she became the founding director of palliative care at New York hospital while having metastatic breast cancer. Okay. She didn't, she didn't know, but um, because I always told her it stayed in the liver, <laughs> you know, whenever we had to change chemos, I'm like, you know what, at least it's confined, but the, the tumors keep coming back in the liver. And, you know, eventually she knew that wasn't the case, but when she became director, director of palliative care at New York hospital, she had liver burden in her bones, one lung, her peritoneum and her liver. Wow. And yet she was volunteering at a hospital in India mm -hmm. um, every couple of months. She was going around the country speaking about patient choice and so much, so many other things involved in trying to understand palliative care. What I learned in that is that purpose is when passion becomes in alignment with values. Mm -hmm. And she was my passion. Our life was my passion. My values were a specific thing. And so she became my purpose. And people ask me all the time, wow, but almost 11 years of chemotherapy, at least once a month, if not every week. Wow. Um, and, you know, how did you do it? And I'm like, it was one of the most purposeful dare I say, joyful things I'll ever do in my life because I was doing it for the person I loved. Mm -hmm. And I was helping support her in her dreams. And, but then the day came, she had said to me, she said, you know, early on um, when she asked me if I was, if I was with her, if, you know, she, are you with me on this? And I was like, of course I'm with you on this. But she said, look, I'm choosing to be so aggressive. She went through a stem cell transplant as well, which, was experimental for breast cancer at the time. It wound up, it had no bearing at all, but she wanted to do it. And um, unfortunately it had also destroyed her immune system. It never recovered um, properly. But she said, because I'm being so aggressive, there will be a day my body won't be able to take one more treatment, ne neither an aspirin. Yeah. And I'm gonna die in pain. I woke up one night, she wasn't in the bed. I walk out into the living room. She was curled up in a ball with a big black glad garbage bag at her mouth, mm -hmm. vomiting. The bag was full. The oh, bag was gosh. full of vomit. And um, I said, we have to go to the hospital. And she said, I don't want to go to New York hospital, which is where she was a doctor. And that's where she received all her treatment. Um, she explained that part of it was dignity because she wasn't able to have a bowel movement. So she didn't want her colleagues giving her enemas and stuff. But I know she also wanted to die peacefully, let's say. Yeah. 
And a few days after being in the hospital, she just held my hand and she said to me, Robert, I'm tired. And I said, okay, baby, rest. And because she never wanted to talk about death itself, that was my signal to take away life-sustaining care and move to comfort care. She fell into a coma right away. Um, so those were all last words, which I think were, were actually the best for us because it was all about us living. It wasn't about the end result. Um, and, and then she passed, she passed soon after that. The, and I could, I could really go into sort of the grieving process. I didn't grieve normally because, um, it was right. Like, you know, she, people say all the time, oh, you know, she died so young yeah, she was 41, but you know what? I think she lived an accelerated life. Mm -hmm. I mean, her life was full. There are people that are 81 and they've never really been happy. So should we measure life by the number of years or the moments of joy? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't necessarily have the grieving process, but I felt empty because it was my purpose. And all of a sudden, I didn't know... I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know where I belonged. Everything seemed very far. And um, when you're a caregiver, you know, you, you learn to speak a different language. You have a different rhythm of life. Every moment changes. Imagine having a job where every day you go into the office and you feel unprepared. And things come up that you have no idea what you're supposed to do with them. Yeah. That raises you to such a a high level of being aware, vigilant, that it's very hard to, let's say, move back down to the normal rhythm of life. Mm -hmm. So I felt really, really out of place. Um, of course, the childhood safety mechanism was run back to Dubai, make money, get back into investment banking because, you know, you're in a lot of debt. 11 years of, of a cancer journey is that cheap. I am sure. I am sure. And um, I just didn't fit in my life anymore. None of it made any sense. And what I realized, and I think this is so important for anyone because loss, we're talking about, for me, loss of of somebody I love, but all loss, if you think of menopause, or I say this all the time, menopause and um, erectile dysfunction, because those are the two big things, right? But all loss has an impact on identity mm -hmm. and it has an impact on safety. One of the acronyms I always use is loss is lack of self and security. Lack of self, self and, and security. Wow. Okay. I love and, that. And what did I realize? I realized that I had to grieve the expectations I had of my life. And that was the moment that I realized. Um, and here's, see, I, I love all this. I, I'm very, I'm a real big kid in my head. Um, I just, you know, I like to play 
in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I say expectations are the bricks with which we build our prison. And if left unchecked, they become the warden of that prison. Yeah. Good. My goodness. Can I just, (laughs) crap? like some of the things you're dropping, I just have to say that. Can you repeat that again? Because it's so powerful. Sure. Um, And it's so poignant and I'm going to explain why. So expectations are the bricks with which we build our prison. Mm -hmm. And if left unchecked, they become the warden of that prison. That is so powerful. I, on this podcast alone, I speak about expectations all the time. I've never, I've never come across those words. And I love the way you've just said that because I always look at expectations. It's all future-based. Everything is all future base. There was one of my podcasts that I did do that um, and maybe this will just land in the sense that it was the difference between standards and expectations and expectations are completely future-based. We're living in a space and time that we can't control where right. standards are what I can do today. And so every time I can feel myself thinking about, I want it to look this way or whatever, that's, that is me putting energy into expectations, which I can't control instead of standards, which I can't control. So I go back to that explanation a lot because it helps me because I was very much um, an expectation, like, like push, get it done, be perfect, do all those things of what it's supposed to look like. And not from in this, in a very different setting, but when we went through all of the challenges with our boys there was a period in time, like I cannot tell you the number of people said that said to us during that time, at least you didn't lose them. At least they're still alive. And I, they couldn't understand it, nor there was no way that they could understand it because they weren't in it, is the sense that I did actually have to grieve the expect. Yes. They were, I was grieving them alive. Like they were alive while I was grieving them. And that is such a hard thing for people to who have not gone through a loss. I didn't know they would come back. I always hoped that they would, but I didn't know that they would. So learning, I I mean, expectations were literally killing me and I had to learn how to let them go. So I did grieve the expectations of what I thought our family was supposed to look like, what my kids were supposed to be doing, all those things and the plans that you have. So I love that definition. Thank you for just letting me share that piece because that definition that you just gave is so powerful And it is something that I check in with regularly when I feel some anxiety kick in, or I feel some frustration, I'm like, wait, no, no, you're attached to the expectations. Focus on the standard. What can you do right now? What can you do right now? So I just want to share that. Thank you. I I love that. I'm I'm going to steal the standard as well, because I think that is just fantastic. But if you think about what you said, um, you were were talking about that um, the future-based things are things you don't have control over. How do you feel when you don't have control over something? Well, normally it's, it's a point of anxiety. It feels like I, it, it feels like it's something that um, I'm not doing enough. I'm not working hard enough. It's like, I feel like it's a fault yet as somebody explained to me, and I can relate to you in a sense without going into a lot of the story is that, I mean, I, I grew up around a lot of um, addiction. I did. I grew up around a lot and some very unpredictable scenarios. And um, so I literally grew up with a lot of different trauma experiences. 
So on a subconscious level, I craved control. Of course. I, I craved it. And I actually would work to create it. And that would mean sometimes that I would have to work harder in order to make it happen, which I never did catch the control. Let's just be clear for a second. It, it wasn't, I could still not control it because the thing is, is that things can actually even turn out better than you expect. Like if you think you're trying to control the outcome, it might turn out 10,000 ways different that are better than what you could ever plan. And you were never meant to create that plan, but the control piece was a piece that I had to work through. So when we started to see addiction come in our family, I was like, no way in hell there's, we're not doing, I'm not living this story again on repeat. And and I worked really hard to control it, which actually only, I might as well just throw gas on the fire. It, it amplified it tenfold is what it did. So I own that part. I certainly did things that weren't, but they were the best that I could do. But this is that piece of that control piece, trying to control those expectations. I had a lot of healing around the word expectations, a lot. Well, I just, I, I, I love so much what you said. And, and for me, what, what came up is, that whole thing about control, when we are fighting to control things that we can never control, mm-hmm. we become a victim to it. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, you, you are powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel you're not enough. You, you crave more perfectionism, right? And perfectionism petrifies your life. It does nothing else, but just oh, it's such it. a waste. It's just yeah. it's such a waste. <laughs> such, I did it for so long. I literally, I literally did it for so long. So I so relate to that. And now in a sense that most of the things like there, I guarantee you that if there's mistakes that you see in the copy and the things that I do, that's on brand. I'm like, cause I don't, I don't attach to it anymore. And even to the point when I had um, mistakes in my book when it published, like you, you, we're going to get to your book in a second. When you publish, and you can mistakes. have, <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, I had like five different editors going through it. I had friends all over the place and the day before we were still finding mistakes. So when it was done, I had people bringing the book to me highlighted with mistakes. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'm actually glad you found them because now I'm human and we can like, anybody can publish anything, but that is not how I, as a very, very, very like severe perfectionist, it's actually funny when I look at it and people who knew me then would laugh and say, you're so different. I'm like, I know, thank God. Right. Like, (laughs) thank God. (laughs) But even the way you're talking about it now, right. That you're, you're able to breathe Mm -hmm. the the, the thing. I mean, if you, you think about it's almost as if you're holding your breath while you're trying to run a marathon mm-hmm. when you are fighting against something that's uncontrollable. And like you said, you know, the outcome could be so much different. I'm going to share something with you. I, from basically the time that my wife was diagnosed soon, soon after I bought myself a kaleidoscope mm-hmm. and I use it and I look through it all the time to remind me of all the different possibilities. And so how can I really account for the abundance in life? Mm -hmm. The more I try to control, the less I'm allowing life to actually be abundant. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we, people can say, oh yeah, but you know, like, um, but look what happened. Your wife had cancer. And so where's the abundance in that? We learned how to live in the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we would have, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if our relationship would have been as as close as it was. I mean, there were so many different things that happened. Now, that's yes, it's benefit finding. Yes, it's reframing. But but the thing is, if you're trying to hold on to life tightly, you're holding on with fists. You're not. You can't hold. Grab something new. There's no room. There's no room to grab anything else. Yes. So um, that's in a way what happened when I went back to Dubai um, and I went through, here's another acronym, but I, I, I went through what I call grief because, you know, the stages of grief, they talk about anger and denial. These are those emotions, but where do they come from? And I realized, and I, of course, I had to create an acronym because that's that's what Rob does. He loves acronyms. So, um, and it's grief. It's guilt. It's rumination. It's impermanence. It's expectation. And it's fear. The hardest thing in the world to do, especially if you've suffered a loss, is to put yourself back in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so easy to take a lot of it internally, right? So uh, um, I had to learn through the process with my wife, but in general with life, to, to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't go into the arena wearing a lot of armor and a big shield because you know what's going to happen? My power, my identity is going to be in that shield, not in what I can do. And the moment I went in, let's say naked and yeah, life sometimes really hurts, but I'd rather live it than fight against it or hide from it. And Interestingly enough, um, because I was numb for a period of time, I started tattooing myself. And um, it was more because it was in the moment of the needle that I actually felt something like mm-hmm. life actually was was there. Right. And I realized, oh, wow, like. I need to become unnumb. I need to put myself back in and and feel all those horrible things and all those good things because you can't select emotions to say, oh, I'm, not, I'm always going to be happy. I, I wish it was true. We can't always be happy. And if we're searching for happiness, that's only fueling the fact that we're not happy in our brain, right? So it's just to, to go out and live it and, and be curious mm-hmm. about what's possible. And so... I had always wanted to live in Italy. It was a dream since I was a kid. And I thought to myself, and I actually what I said to myself is, what if I can F and pull it off? Like, that's what life is about, right? Where, where is there real failure? This, that's something I learned through the process with my wife as well, is that the failure, and everyone has said this, philosophers have said this, the Failure comes in not trying. Mm -hmm. If you just redefine success as taking the action to try, 
than actually getting to the end result, you've won. And what what is it? What's the story you want to leave? Do you want to be the person that tried? And that's sort of what how I started looking at my life. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go live in Italy and I don't speak the language and I don't know anybody. And I showed up and I was teaching English for $8 an hour because, yeah, unfortunately, being an investment banker, but going through 11 years of, of caregiving for cancer, there was no money in the bank. Yeah. Uh, and I thought the worst thing in the world is what? I go live with my mom, right? I'll be 50. I'll go live with my mom. But I want to at least try. And um, that then started to, let's say, rebuild the identity. Mm-hmm. Because that's who I was with my wife. You know, we were always trying each day to live a little better, be a little closer, hopefully feel better. Um, You know, hopefully new medicine was going to come out and we'll get to that point. And then my life was, okay, I'm going to learn more about myself and I'm going to put more of my values into play. And that's what led me to become a life coach Mm -hmm. because I realized what's the value of all this stuff that I've learned if I'm not sharing it? That's, that is a flip, uh, like a, gosh, my brain, a light switch flip literally is when all of a sudden it becomes, and I had that, I had a, a counselor say to me that, you know, you've been searching for answers everywhere of what to do as a parent with this. Like you've been looking, you've been Google searching. Did it ever occur to you that maybe you're the one that's actually supposed to to do that, to, to actually start talking about things that people don't want to talk about. And I was like, no, that's crazy. Like, that's crazy. But that's where it started was she just put some different questions into my head. And I started to look at it and go, wait, that's actually creating purpose out of the worst experience of my life. Now I feel like this now I'm like, I felt light for the first time in years. I was like, maybe that's actually what I'm supposed to do. And it just, it's whatever, whatever that is that shifts that it created some momentum to create a change and look at it, looking at it differently. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Because there are lessons that are learned, right? So you've given value to your journey. It's, it's not just something that wound up being, you know, bad or shameful or whatever other title someone wants to put on some of these things. I actually, after, after Des, Des passed away, um, there was the article in the New York times, which came out um, about nine months after she, she passed away and she had died in the middle of the interview. So the reporter had come to me and said, um, you know, I want to finish the article. And your wife said some really interesting things. And I said, yeah, I know she did. And she also said they were off the record. And the woman said, well, that's true. But when someone passes away, nothing is off the record. And I knew at that time, the article would probably be viewed controversial because of some of the things my wife said today, it isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew my wife wanted people to talk about her journey breast cancer, palliative care, patient choice. And so I was like, okay, go. And that's how the being on the front page. I mean, an article, a nice article doesn't show up on the front. No, it does not. Um, And 
I went around the country for a year speaking at different hospitals and palliative care groups trying to explain the article because at that time it was it was unusual today it's not at all um and i wasn't ready to step into the that purpose because i felt it was hers because i needed to define something for myself mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because life just brought me back to when i became a life coach i started working with with caregivers usually men Um, because it's an underserved population. Uh, you know, most people don't think men are, are wind up being caregivers, but it's like 42% of caregivers are men. Um, and it's just not a statistic that's well known. And then I just started moving more into the resilience space. And I realized, wow, that's everything my, from my whole life, because it comes from the childhood, but everything she and I went through. Mm-hmm. And now what I, what I say is, and this comes from, it's a sort of a Harry Potter reference. So I can't say it's, Oh my God, you I'm love so Harry creative. Potter too? Like <laughs> I do. I do. I'm sorry. I love Harry Potter. But, okay. You, you know, the scar on his yeah. head, right? Yeah. Okay. So from his mother's love protecting him. Mm-hmm. Well, I say I am beautifully scarred for having loved and cared for my wife because I was hurt, but yet in such a beautiful way because of what I went through. And it was in that moment when it all came to be this beautiful thing that it made it so easy to share. When you talk about, oh, but you, you know, you speak so confidently and you say these things so well, it was the moment that I stepped in the beauty of it Mm -hmm. and not the tension of it or not the drama of it. Um, and that's what makes it natural. Mm -hmm. I love, I love, love, love all of that. That is just, there's so much, so much power and impact in what you're speaking and what you're sharing now. So you, you, what was the time period from your wife passing to you? You then you said you spoke for a year and then you went to Italy where you are now. What was that time period for you? Sure. Um, from 2000, September of 2009 to basically September 2010, I was still in the United States and I was dealing with, um, you know, speaking at these conferences. Also, I'll, I'll tell you a very interesting story. Um, New York Hospital asked if I wanted to have a memorial and it's something I didn't even think about. So um, I said, yeah, that would be really nice. And um, they said when and I said, well, Sort of sooner than later. If if I walked you through the whole my wife's passing away and all that, I mean it's it, it's funny in a way just because um, of how I took care of things and I dealt with things and like I gave all my wife's clothes away the next day to um, uh, dress for success. Oh wow! Uh, because it it was just you know my wife knew I was that way you know I was well, before they took her away in the hospital I was talking to her body and I'm like now you know <laughs> you, you know I'm going to go home I'm going to start to pack things up it doesn't mean anything okay <laughs> so um but so that one they asked me about this memorial and they said well um we only have one date available in 2009 which could accommodate enough of people and I said oh whatever date it is it's fine it wound up being our 20th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. 
and she wanted a big party. So, you know, in a way it was, that's where I personally emerged as Rob, the life coach, because I actually gave a sermon for more than, I don't know how else to explain it. It was lessons learned. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there were people that, you know, one woman left her job and went to Italy, to Florence, to learn how to paint. <laughs> so I was like, wow. Um, so after that one year, I went back to Dubai. And in 2014, I just couldn't, I couldn't get into the rhythm. Now, I was doing really well at my job, but I, I really felt empty. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'd ever come back to Italy because my wife spent we spent her last birthday, her 40th birthday in Rome and then in India. So to me, Italy was going to be dead. But I went to see Eat, Pray, Love in the movie theater. And I hadn't read the book, but my wife loved the book. So I sort of went for her, basically. And I was a blubbering mess in the first two scenes because it's Rome and it's India. And I'm like, somebody take me out of the movie theater because, you know, this is embarrassing. And I booked a ticket to Rome and I landed. I called my business partner and I said, college, you know what? I want to move to Italy. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, I left Dubai. I moved to Italy. So it was about four years. Um, but when I moved to Italy, I put myself in life coaching school and just decided, you know what? This is the direction I want to go in. Then oddly enough, when I decided to become a citizen, I was going through the paperwork. I needed some documents. And so I came to one of the towns that one of my great grandparents immigrated from because all my great grandparents were Italian, um, mostly Sicilian, actually. But I come to this small little town. It's called Pacentro. There's 900 people and I fall in love with it. I have an under the Tuscan sun moment. I buy a house that I didn't really need. And, it, you know, the balcony was crumbling. There were birds in the house. There were no windows. Um, and I move here. Wow. It's Funny enough, this is also where Madonna comes from, by the way. I have to throw that out there because it's Madonna. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's never been, but I know her cousin. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. So, and then how long after did your book come? And I would love for you to tell us about your book. Oh, sure. So the book actually, uh, I, now this is an interesting story because I have a co-author and she's a great, great friend. She was a friend of Desiree of, of ours, um, basically that we met in the chemotherapy room because she was also a patient. Mm -hmm. Um, and she has a precancerous disease. So, you know, she was just keeping it in check. And after Desiree passed away, like two years later, she said, you know, Robert, you guys live such an amazing life. You should write a book. And she's ex-VP of Estee Lauder. She decided to quit her job because she wanted to become a, a writer herself. And um, I was like, yeah, Phyllis, I don't know if I'm there. And she's like, you know what? Why don't you just tell me the stories and I'll start documenting them. And a couple of years later, she presented me with the skeleton. And she's like, this is the skeleton for a book if, if you want to do it. And I was reading it and it didn't sit well. 
um, there was a lot of sadness in the book. There was a lot of nothing was clear. It, it, it didn't give the the full picture of what I would want somebody to know from that that journey. There were lots of nice pieces, but you know, so we sort of just let it sit. And then, oddly enough, in two thousand and nineteen, was it two thousand and nineteen? Yeah, it was two thousand and nineteen. Um, somebody from Oprah reached out to me and just wanted to ask, you know, they knew the story and um, really nice, nice a woman and wanted to know just where I was in my life. And she said, well, did you ever think of ever writing a book? So after that, I thought, you know what, I should revisit that because her story really is important. And there wasn't that oh, you know, I'm afraid people are going to think I'm trying to get rich off her story or I can't build my own life, so I'm using her death to build the career. That all had went away. And when I revisited it, I started to realize that the real message had nothing to do with cancer. Yeah. The, the real message is about living around adversity. Um, she was very clear on that. She she was very clear on saying that she wanted to live around cancer. She never called it her cancer. We never defined it like, oh, my cancer. No. Um, she was dealing with cancer. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't talk about that she had cancer. And it was about people are people before they are patients. And they are never their disease. Never. Wow. There are people that are confronting disease, but they're not defined by their disease. In fact, we're not defined by our circumstances. That's really what's at the core of all of this. And that's where choice comes in. Yeah. And that's the reason the book is called Chasing Life is not about longevity. It was about chasing the moments, building those moments. Like, we were lucky because at the beginning of, you know, my, my career, I made good money and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority really paid me well. And we traveled all over the world. I can't tell you the names of the five-star hotels. I can't tell you what we ate, but I can tell you the laugh when, you know, she played with the dog or mm -hmm. her, her, she couldn't cook. So, you know, <laughs> the number of times the kitchen was on fire, <laughs> you know, I'd, walk, I'd walk in and there'd be smoke everywhere and, you know, she'd giggle and, and I couldn't help but kiss her, you know, and uh, then we would just order a pizza or, you know, being dirt poor and grabbing a $2 bottle of wine and a pizza and going to sit in Central Park and, you know, drinking the wine out of a paper bag. And that I remember, mm -hmm. you know, but some great hotel somewhere. No. So um, it just also wound up happening that while I was writing the book and more than anything, that book brought to life the 19-year-old kid that met her. Mm -hmm. Like I am more that 19-year-old kid now than I've ever been in my life. And right before COVID in September, 2019, I just started accumulating some money and I thought about doing coaching retreats because I did, I did do some here in Italy, but I didn't have licenses and this is Italy. So, you know, you can do whatever you want. And, but I decided to make an investment in a tour company 
So I could use their platform mm-hmm. and I could have coaching retreats. Now, did I have a desire to do coaching retreats? No, but the American brain was saying, build, 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 build. So I make the investment February, 2020. I go back to the United States to market. Where does COVID explode in Europe? Italy. Italy. Company Company goes bankrupt, lose my money. And it was having been working on the book that I just looked at it and I was like, so what's next? Mm -hmm. Wow. What's next? And that's when I realized, you know what? I, I wasn't looking for retreats. It seemed like it was the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't what resonated with me. And when I asked what resonated with me, it was to get into the space of talking more about, living around adversity, patient choice, all of those things that come so naturally to me because I lived it on my skin. Yeah. And so. Wow. That is so powerful. When did the book actually publish then? Was that? Well, actually it was supposed, this is another funny story. It was supposed to publish on the 21st. Now, Somehow the publisher didn't put something in place. So it really published on the 18th of June, mm-hmm. but j- just recently. And um, like June, just a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. June okay. 21st. Yeah. I, well, wow. I say June 21st because um, the, she loved the summer solstice. It, that was one of the days that we would for sure sit with a bottle of wine, wherever we were and watch the sunset. That was her, her thing. Like, so um, it became my thing, right? So, um, and the cover of the book is a candy apple. Oh, actually. I can see it right yeah, there. I, I, yeah, yeah I, I finally just got, I got my copy, right? So, um, and I was trying to think what really reflects Desiree. And it was that childhood, childhood innocence of, just joy and really just savoring life. Mm-hmm. It actually also plays a part in, in the book because of, you know, um, me getting the engagement, right? <laughs> so it's all, all very funny. But, uh, and so many people have said, but it's such an unusual cover for a story about a woman that dies of cancer. And I said, no, it's about a woman that lived for life. I was just going to ask you if that's where, if that was the different perspective and that is, that's back to the switch again. I don't think like, unless you live through something, you don't always immediately go to the flip of the switch. My first thought when I thought candy apple was a way to live life. Like that was my very first because you're chasing life, but people will look at it and go, it's a sad story and it's dealing it. It's all about cancer. That's a very odd but it's the perception of what's there. So I have no doubt that even if you don't live the adversity of having cancer directly in your family, which is almost going to be impossible anymore. But if you don't live that, that you still will walk away with some tips, tools, strategies, thoughts from your book. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's adversity, right? It's not, first of all, unfortunately, um, 
Yeah, this this is very funny. Here, I moved to Italy. I live in the national park of Abruzzo. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. But I didn't know they had ticks, and I got bitten by a tick, and I didn't know, and so I developed Lyme's disease. Oh my god! And um, and you know, it's it's sort of like okay, so you know, the lessons I learned are to live around it. It's 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 not the focal point, and so what I hope people get from the book because the actual the cancer part is rather a small it's the underlying theme of course but it's actually rather a small part it's the contrast that's needed to show living around it right and so what i hope the book does is tell people regardless of circumstances what what can you do to be happy? What can you do to find some joy today? What can you be grateful for? You mentioned gratitude earlier. And I think people don't understand gratitude because you're not grateful for things. You know, oh, I'm so grateful for my dog. I'm so grateful for my, you know, the sunset. You're grateful for the emotion it invoked. Mm -hmm. And so you have to contemplate not having that emotion anymore. That's what you're grateful for. It has to take into account the loss to make it actually important, right? So if I sit on my balcony and I drink a cup of coffee in the morning, I'm grateful for the way it makes me feel, mm -hmm. not the view. And if this helps people have a perspective of more joy, um, being grateful, what what I say, the tagline that I, I use that I'm hoping people will walk away with is, it is only when we value the ordinary moments that we live in extraordinary life. And I want people to start looking at those moments and giving them value. Yeah. We don't need to live that Instagram lifestyle. I mean, that's it's not even real, <laughs> but... <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Like it's absolutely so true. It's it's there's so much value in what you've just said there. Wow. Um wow. It has been a very powerful conversation and for anybody who listens to this show regularly, you're going to hear so many similarities in how we both speak. And I think it's hilarious because we've literally just met and it's just, we, when you talk about like the armor and the arena and how you carry, you can, you can't selectively block emotions. You have to feel it. You've got to move through those things. It's just, it's so, it's so powerful. And I think you've shown a side of grief that I think is really important in this journey that you have come on and how it really truly sounds like you were just honoring her journey, her life, what she's done. And, and I think that's so powerful. So I thank you so much for doing that. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm, this is, this is wonderful. So, oh. And it does feel like we've known each other for a long time. You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. I mean, it's just, you, yeah. I honestly, people who listen to this regularly are going to say, oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. And I love, we said this before we hit record. I love the fact that I think even more importantly, I do think it's more important is the fact that you're a male speaking in this area and we need more, we need more men to be open, to speak, to share 
And that's only going to happen when more people do it and give permission to others. It's like, literally, it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen when a few continually like strong men step up who decide to be vulnerable and share, you give permission to others. And I, I think it's so important, honestly, I, I heard Lewis Howe speak like three years ago. And if you listen to his, oh, yeah, he's, oh, I heard him speak three years ago. And he spoke at a women's conference. There was 600 women in the room. And he spoke in such a way that I was like, I have to meet him. And I just knew instinctively I had to. And as soon as he was done speaking, I was one of the first in line. And I just said to him, like, thank you so much. I told him my story. At that point, I just published my book and we were doing. And he said that boys are being left behind. They're literally being left behind because we are seeing these kinds of events with, you know, 500, 600, 1,000 women all like being inspired to live your best life, but we're leaving these boys behind. So as a mom of boys, I like am encouraging you to keep going and realize that even how you choose to show up will impact what they sure. choose to do. And so I, that has always resonated with me and always resonated with me. So I, really just want to honor that fact and love what you're doing and how you are taking, you literally embody everything I talk about in the show. You are taking your story, <laughs> your story, and you are doing something good with it and impacting, serving and supporting others. And the more we have people do that, I just think it just opens up so many doors for healing and movement and impact with other people. I I, I agree. And I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity. And, you know, it, it is unfortunate because it's, it's harder for we men to accept vulnerability. And, and what I realized is both with vulnerability and surrender, probably, you know, the two pieces of kryptonite to a, to a man, um, or a perfectionist. <laughs> or a perfectionist. Or a perfectionist. They are the bravest things you can ever do. Because you know what they, they say? They say, it's so effing important to me that I'm not going to hide behind a fake wall. I'm actually going to go out there and say, yeah, I don't have it all right now, but I'm going to fight for it. Yeah. And... I I think somewhere along the line, this idea of being strong meant never to show you need help. Mm -hmm. um, but asking for help or going out there and being vulnerable says, I care about this so damn much that I'm going to rally every single person around me to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And that's true strength. Hundred percent. That is that is exactly what strength is. Is if you go back to Brene Brown's definition of the number one thing that we as humans crave is connection. It is we crave connection with other people, even though we've spent this last fifteen months like a lot of us isolated and alone, and we we are missing connection. So we crave connection, but the problem is, is the only way to get to connection is through vulnerability. You have to be able to be vulnerable to be seen. To allow yourself to be seen to build connection. And if we don't change what the word vulnerability means and we don't change how we view it, then we're never going to get to connection, right? That's the fake Instagram life you're just talking about that you don't, it's not real. It's not real. You have to allow, I mean, I, I look at 
the accounts that I follow, the people that I follow. I mean, I love and admire people who are real. I admire, I love it. I love those stories. And they, not only do they show up in spite of what they have going on, they actually use it as fuel to create something for what they have going on. There's no room for excuses. It's like, this is, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I admire that. And I just, I think that you fall right into that area. And I'm so grateful that our paths have connected. Thanks, Marsha. Thanks. You're welcome. Where can people connect with you and find you? The, the best way actually is just to go to my personal website, which is robertparty.com. Okay. Um, and they could just always click on connect with me. Um, I do have a tiny, I call it a tiny podcast, um, but I have a podcast I guess it's on Spotify. It's on Buzzsprout. It's called Possibility in Action, which is, I I gave my, my life's philosophy a name and it's called Possibility in Action. Um, but it's me speaking for three to five minutes on something that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's usually acronym. No, it's not always acronyms, but like <laughs> fear, for example, I'll leave you with this one. Fear is finding excuses against reaching outside your comfort zone finding excuses against Against, yeah reaching outside your comfort zone that's all it is it's just to not go out you know past where you're comfortable Mm -hmm. that's all fear is there is real fear of course but um that's a danger Mm -hmm. instinct not the fear of failure or fear of rejection or all that other stuff Yeah. It's interesting because it's so, uh, there's so many ways that I could take that, but I just, I look at it and go with like, with everything that we went through when COVID first hit, my husband and I were just in such a different spot than a lot of people. And that's not a judgment. It's just that we had lived through some like horrible, I'm not saying it wasn't horrible. Please don't take that way. Right. But for people, like, for example, I had my 50th during COVID and the very, well, I've actually had two birthdays in lockdown. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> story. Um, and uh, people were like, oh my God, that is terrible. It's the worst thing ever. And I'm like, no, it's not really. Like, it's just, it's, it didn't occur to me to even put that in the class of the worst thing ever. It wasn't even right. there. And partway through last year, my husband and I got in conversation and he said, you know, I often wonder if everything we've gone through has just prepped us for you know, what is coming next. And we just look at this differently. I didn't, it, it, we just look at it differently. There's a lot of things I wish I had more control over, but that's like another story, but it's just, we look at it differently. And I think that's part of what happens is when you have those experiences that are so far out of your control and you learn how to grow through it, that you do look and perceive things differently. I love that. Grow through it. Mm-hmm. I love grow, that. right. You just keep growing through it. Oh, I, you know, I have, there's no doubt I could talk to you for a very long time. And this is definitely a longer podcast that's full of so much value. So I thank you for that. I do have one question for you and see if you can sum it up. What lesson in life are you most grateful for? To not be afraid when I feel fear. Mm. It's okay. So, you know, does it mean that I'm really tied to the outcome? Does it mean it's really important to me? But it motivates me. Like when I feel afraid, Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel that way. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to approach it. I want to confront it. And that, that's, I, I think that sums up all of what I learned that really did help me with Desiree and helped me live life forward. I call it living life forward, right? Because I can't, you don't move on, get over something like that. No. You know, it, it's, it's now part of your fabric. It's, it's made you who you are. It has changed something in you. And why would you want to move on from it? I'll move forward with it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think more than anything else for me, not being afraid when I feel fear. Wow. Absolutely. That's just so powerful and so, 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 so good. Honestly, this has been an incredible conversation. I, my gut tells me it will not be the last time we talk because I hope so. (laughs) I don't think so. I have a really good gut feeling and my gut is saying, no, it's not. And I, I thank you so much for following your gut and reaching out to me to connect because as you said earlier, that's not something you typically do. I get all kinds of requests and yours stopped me. And I went, wait a minute, let's look at this one. And I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that I did. You had so much value for everybody here. And I just cannot thank you enough for all the work that you're doing. I thank you just as much, (laughs) really. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.